episode start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein here with Nicholas Zart. Uh, as a quick reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. We would actually, at the moment, like to highlight a new iTunes review we got from a listener, Tommy101SWE from Sweden in uh, mid-October, who commented, great show about clean tech electric vehicles and such, nice discussion and open perspectives, also for an international audience. As a non-financial incentive for any of you who would like to give us preferably positive reviews, uh, we'd be more than happy to read them on air and you can have your 15 seconds of fame. Uh, how, how go things for you this week, Nicholas? Great. Thanks, Matthew. Everything is fine over here. And indeed, it's really nice to hear something like that. I like the uh, international audience part. I think we're doing a pretty good job after all. Obviously, not being in Europe or in Asia, I don't have a good sense for podcasts there. But Clean Techna is a global website. So we do want to try to make sure we're not North America centric. To be honest, uh, maybe even a majority of the action is going on in Asia, you know, China particularly, and in Europe with some of the very compelling and proactive actions that are being taken there. So yeah, we would like to try and maintain a global focus and not be too um, North American or even West Coast centric, uh, seeing as we're both uh, from this time zone. You know, that's actually great because today we do have an Asian story we'll add it to, uh, to the podcast a little bit later. Now, uh, for a change, I'll start off. There's a very interesting, very encouraging story coming out of uh, Vancouver recently. A uh, developer and an architecture firm, uh, this is Cornerstone Architecture, we'll have the links in the show notes, uh, recently put together a six-story, 85-unit apartment building with Passive House certification. So Passive House is basically a building standard that provides extraordinary energy efficiency. It really cuts down on a building's footprint. A passive house building is readily upgradable to a net zero um, building once you put solar panels on top of the roof. Uh, for a six-story building with 85 units, you might not quite have enough space for solar panels there to go net zero. But it is a very encouraging thing, and not just because they demonstrated that you could do a passive house on a large apartment building. It really energized the city and other developers into saying, hey, these guys have done it. Maybe we can do it. The city is saying, well, hey, let's make all the, pa all the retrofits, all the new developments passive house within, say, 10 years. You know, they need to give suppliers and everyone else a time to ramp up and implement the technology. But the really coolest part is that there is now a real estate development being proposed in downtown Vancouver for two passive house towers. These towers are, are proposed to be 43 and 48 stories each. So you're looking at 90 odd floors of passive house grade building going up. This is amazing. You can think of the opportunity here for Vancouver in particular. You think of all the suppliers who are going to set up shop in Canada at least uh, to do passive house building, well, there's so much material is going to go into this building if it moves forward that for sure you're going to have wholesalers and other distributors. Everyone's going to want to have a piece of the action and going to want to set up a local office. And then hopefully this can go out to other developers because 
no one wants to be known as the developer who doesn't offer passive house buildings. They all want to be at the forefront, this idea of social proof. Uh, so it's very encouraging. I should note, being a Vancouverite, that it isn't all lollipops and unicorns because the proposal is to actually tear down social housing to build this tower. It is one of the, uh, the curses of Vancouver that basically, unless you have a white collar income, you're gradually being moved out of the city because you can't afford things. But all the same, it is a, it is a very encouraging development. You know, that's, that's really interesting that you're saying this because for the past decade or so, we've been seeing incredible um, breakthroughs and new materials, especially when it comes to building materials. I mean, there are specific types of, you know, halfway concrete, halfway foam kind of uh, building blocks that we can use for homes. There, there's, you know, 3D printing for homes. There are all kinds of ways to quote unquote greenify homes. But so far, we've only seen companies talk about it, you know, engineers talk about it, researchers talk about it. We haven't seen any commercialization of this is a great example of commercialization of it, but also even better, the potential to upgrade and to make it completely net neutral. So I think this is really fantastic. Sad note, as you say, on the gentrification of, of most cities, but I think this is almost a, a global uh, I wouldn't say problem so far, although it might turn into a big problem at some point, but gentrification is really happening everywhere at this stage. Nonetheless, this is really fantastic because those two towers are going to be the proof that, hey, you, we can build well passive homes right now that can easily be, well, easily, that can be upgraded to a net zero. That, that's fantastic. That's really great. And again, I thought I read somewhere in there that it would be using concrete. And didn't we also hear things about uh, using concrete in China to uh, clean the air out? Yes, there are some kinds of concrete which, um, depending on how they're built, you can either, you can slowly absorb modest amounts of CO2 from the local atmosphere, but you can also have, um, I believe you can put in additives or maybe coated layers of titanium dioxide. I think uh, titanium dioxide is sometimes used in like zinc creams for sunburns yes. and so forth. As it turns out, titanium dioxide is a pretty good catalyst for a lot of the noxious fumes that come out of combustion, um, like I believe it's nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides. So, so yes, even thinking past the energy efficiency of the building, we are likely to see technologies and deployments where the buildings uh, can perhaps be considered uh, actively cleaning up the environment or maybe passively cleaning up the environment as well, which is quite good. I suppose one other angle to this is that as much new construction as there is, the unofficial city bird is the construction crane. The, <laughs> the reality is that your existing building stock is always going to outweigh the new building stock you build, right? Because you might rebuild, I don't know, a few percent of your building stock per year and buildings last a very long time. I got a, a few links from Dylan Harima at Canada's Pemben Institute. So thank you very much, Dylan, who gave me some information on the Netherlands Energy Sprong Initiative. And most people know the Energy Vende in Germany as their big transition to clean energy away from fossil fuels. And this Energy Sprong Initiative is basically an effort to retrofit all of their buildings in the next few decades. And one interesting strategy they're taking to do these mass upgrades 
cheaply is to use a car outfitted with laser scanning units, a bit like a Google car, but on steroids, to get precise and exact measurements of all the street-facing windows. Uh, what they can then do for the participants, windows get new coverings. A factory will prefabricate new windows, slightly larger and very well insulated for the entire city block or city blocks. And then um, one day a construction crew will go down and basically glue on or paste on all these new layers of windows. So basically, it's not really that high tech. It's very smart. All the windows fit exactly because they've been laser scanned to make sure everything's custom built, even if the building has settled and so forth. And then most of all, the cost per unit is down because instead of doing 50 windows one at a time, you're getting a bulk order of 50 windows and the construction crew has is busy for the entire day as opposed to just doing a couple hours work and then having to go back and do other business development and stuff. So it's very encouraging. I'm hopeful that this brilliant idea can expand elsewhere because uh, it again, it's it's a way of solving this challenge of if you do one or two of anything, it's really expensive. But if you can get to that mass production phase, that bulk buying, that Groupon kind of approach, uh, wow, you can, you can really uh, bring the cost down and engage more people because the cost is further down. Wow, I, I really like that idea, actually. That makes, makes a lot of sense. Although um, um, I'd be interested to see what the uh, privacy issues that will arise, and you know, they always do arise at one point or another, of having cars that take measurements from outside and everything. There, there's bound to be some, uh, some concern. And it would be interesting to see how, you know, over here in the Western part of the West world, how we would react to this and how the Europeans will react to this. But it doesn't surprise me from, uh, from the Netherlands. They've always been very proactive. They've used uh, well, of course, they've used windmills for, for the longest time. It's, it's a fascinating country, and it doesn't surprise me that they're, uh, they're so uh, gung-ho about that. Yeah, I mean, the Netherlands is, after, the, after all, the home of the group formerly known as Dong Energy. That would be Dutch Oil and Natural Gas Company, and they've now renamed themselves Orsted, or I apologize to uh, people from that region of the world. I'm sure I'm mangling that pronunciation. Dong Energy is now Orsted, named after a uh, regional scientist uh, who did really work on electrification. So yeah, there is a lot of fertile work being done in the Netherlands, as everywhere else in the world. I suppose uh, we could maybe give a shout out to any listeners. If you have interesting innovations going on in your area that uh, we can bring attention to in a fairly easy to loop in or weave in way, we'd love to share the developments and their significance uh, with our international audience. You know what? I actually, I, I, I can say something because I used to take the train very often from Paris to uh, the Netherlands. Nederlands, ik hou van hou. I love uh, Holland. It's a beautiful country. It's, it's really, it's, it's a warm and inviting country. So, and I thought this might be also a great segue into the next uh, story talking about trains. So I, I picked up an interesting story, and this indeed is from Asia. It's from China specifically. As you might be aware of, the Chinese have been very, very creative for the past decade or so. They've made tremendous progress with their uh, railway infrastructure. They now have some of the fastest quote-unquote bullet trains running daily at, you know, something like 350 kilometers an hour. So they're now competing with the Japanese bullet trains. They're competing with Alstom. They're competing with Siemens. And mea culpa, I'm a train geek. I love trains. I grew up in Europe, so I, I'm used to hopping on trains. But this story really picked my curiosity. It's actually a trackless electric train and it was held as that. So of course, my, my brain started kicking into gears and I thought, how do you have a trackless electric train? Well, it turns out that, that these guys really kind of took the best of all worlds, right? So they, they, they 
took the approach of a tram and a tram has more than one carriages, usually, you know, two or three, but usually rolls on rails, right? So metallic wheels to rails, which by the way, is the most efficient way of moving anything on this planet, as long as it's moving, not the starting up, but once it's rolling, there's nothing more efficient than a train system, than a locomotive and carriages, including metros. So what they did is they thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could use the same idea as a, as a tram, but make it more of a bus kind of way? So the idea here is very simple. It marries autonomous driving, it marries train-like formations, and it marries buses and trams all together into what they call a trainless, uh, sorry, a trackless electric train. Of course, I wouldn't have used the word train in there because it's really more of a guided bus with three carriages that can go pretty much anywhere in a city. The pros and the cons are very simple. To lay down tracks is very expensive. You need to not only completely gut a lane or even add another lane and then put down the rails. And of course, then you have a metro system. Of course, you have to put poles and catenaries where you stretch uh, the catenaries for, for electricity and uh, give it, feed it to the metro. So that's very, very expensive. So they thought, why don't we make sort of autonomous bus that can ride along specific lanes and within those lanes inside the tarmac if you wish we'll have a guided system so this is kind of an autonomous driving system that knows where it is has a specific lane dedicated to it and will be shuttling uh, people back and forth there is a, a testing of it right now in uh, china and i'm not going to really say where i mean i, I guess i could it's Zhengzhou. And it's uh, pretty fascinating that they're putting together all of those different technologies. The, the reason why I'm excited about it also is because in the 30s, uh, the French, um, the French uh, train systems really innovated a lot. And they had what they would call automotrice. So they were just little carriages with their own energy system. Bugatti actually had one. It was the fastest one of them all. But Michelin, the tire maker, thought, you know, rail on rail is not very comfortable. You can, you can feel the junctions. It's not a smooth ride or anything like that. So they had the brilliant idea of instead of metal on metal, why don't we put tires on the, on the rails? So they basically had this automotrice, so this, this you know, this, this, this motorized uh, uh, carriage that would ride on rail on the sorry on tires and that was great super comfortable absolutely amazing the drawbacks is well you have flat tires once in a while obviously and you also had something about like 18 wheels on them so it wasn't very feasible and so eventually this morphed into uh, what the french uh, parisian subway system uses now on some lines they use a also a tire system that has um, metallic wheels inside and so if the tire explodes or, or has a flat then it can always rely on the uh, the rail itself lots of wonderful things like that happening here and i thought it was really a great idea of, of putting different technologies that we use in the past to something that we can use now one of the comments that i did read on the story was well it's going to be so long that it's going to block traffic well no it's not it's it never was those Actually, those metros already exist. Those trams already exist in Spain. And we never make it longer than a block because you don't want to block any traffic. That's the whole point. So I thought the infrastructure could be reasonably affordable for cities. And also the, the very good point or the, the biggest pro of it all, the biggest benefit is that this would be a sort of a prelude to autonomous driving since we need to redo the infrastructure. We need to do the roads so that autonomous cars can drive on them. Well, this would be actually a great way to, um, to do um, that kind of system. I, I just thought it was mind-blowing. I like 
Yeah, I agree. That's very promising. I like the idea that they're proposing to use pantographs as well, because overhead lines are unpopular in many communities in many cities, and relying on catenary wires, unless there are already wires existing for trains, uh, I think is is difficult because then you're asking for like a a behavioral change, and people are very resistant to that kind of thing. Whereas you know, having the overhead uh, sort of flash chargers is much less disruptive. Yeah, and that's actually a good point too, because a lot of metro systems, the last one I saw that uses a really nice way of resolving that problem is the metro system in Nice in the south of France. They basically travel with a pantograph and, and catenaries everywhere, but as soon as they get to the downtown part, which cannot be you know changed or modified, the catenaries go down. I'm sorry, the pantographs go down, the catenaries stop, and it has a battery pack so that it can do basically three hops until it gets to outside downtown, pulls up its pantograph, and then recharges and moves, moves onwards again. There is also another bus system in China that has been tested since I believe last year, if not two years ago, that uses ultra-capacitors. And so what it does is exactly that. It raises a pantograph at, at stations, and you know, ultra-capacitors, they can discharge and recharge very quickly. So recharge really quickly, put down the pantograph, jump to the next uh, station, and then recharge and so on and so forth again. So there are plenty of combinations like that that we can do. And this is, this is really interesting. And you're right, pentagrams are not that pretty. I'm thinking an inductive system would be really fantastic for those kind of trains. I guess uh, that means that uh, we'll turn to the main event of uh, this week's Drum roll, ta-da-da. Which is, of course, the Tesla quarterly results. The Tesla quarterly call was yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday, November 2nd. Tesla stock is taking a little bit of a hit. As I look at the finance website here, it's at $299. I should also note as a preamble, as a warning, that I don't pretend to know anything about stocks. I have forsworn and given up investing in stocks because I thought I was an expert, but it turned out I just had an unbelievably lucky streak. And it cost me a lot of losses to learn that it was just <laughs> a lucky streak. Uh, it's, it's, it's really crazy uh, stock options when you think about it. I mean, the whole stock system is incredible. I, I have a really quick, funny thing to say. In the 1990s, I had an IT company in New York. And of course, I had a lot of dot-com companies. They all insisted on paying me with stock options. And I said, no, 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 thank you. I, I'd rather have some cash right now. And looking back, oh boy, I'm, I'm really glad I did that. But I'm sorry to hear about what you went through. And I know a lot of people, including myself, we went through losing a lot of money at the market. Tesla had a... Memorable for the wrong reasons, conference call yesterday. The company shared some of the struggles it was having, uh, had some delays to some of the timelines. And I think one of the consensus opinions that seems to have formed is that Tesla needs to stop over-promising. When you're a startup in Silicon Valley, over-promising might be part of the game. You want to say, we're way better than these other competitors. Everyone flock to us, and then you drive your competitors out of business through network effects. And the problem is that that doesn't work when you're a mature company in a real industry shipping real products. I was from the fuel cell industry back in the day when uh, we had, I think, one of our longer tenured CEOs. I think he lasted about 10 years. He got the company to EBITDA positive, and, and then that was his big accomplishment. He retired shortly afterwards. I'll paraphrase him, but when he came in, he said, you know, we're going to under-promise. We're going to keep our mouths shut about our long-term ambitions. 
So help me God, we are going to get a track record of delivering what we say we're going to deliver, and we will regain credibility with investing analysts. And to his credit, even though it took a long time, and even though some of the early under-promises weren't under enough, that has happened. The company, Ballard, kind of on the verge of profitability now. I think their last quarter, they lost maybe a million dollars net, but they're EBITDA positive, which is kind of the losing company's version of profitability. Tesla has gotten a lot of attention, a lot of adoration and adulation for the big numbers it has promised and proposed, and it's having trouble living up to that, and it would not be in trouble if it had not set these big, hairy, audacious goals that have put it in the situation it's in. Yeah, you know, that's Matthew, that you're, you're hitting a lot of points, and it's something that many writers have been saying for a long time. Tesla is the company we love to love and also we hate to hate. It's, uh, it's amazing. It really thumbs its nose at the exotic car market. It shows that the possible is really, po well, the impossible is really possible and that you can do a heck of a lot with just off the shelf batteries. However, it, it's a tough place to work and uh, you can ask almost anybody who works there. It is a tough place to work. Uh, it's being run like a startup, although it isn't a startup anymore. And it really squeezes people and squeezes their, uh, their livelihood in many ways. Now, I'm not saying it's a horrible place to work for by any stretch of the imagination, but it's true that it has this sort of a cocky attitude that we can do no wrong, the public will like us no matter what. And that's true. Pretty much whatever Tesla does, whatever Musk says, usually you know, everybody smiles and says, go ahead, and that's fine. However, at one point or another, overpromising really does burn bridges. And, and you're right, the companies that I, I really like personally are the companies that underpromise and deliver much more than they promise. So Tesla really needs to, you know, maybe the word is mature and, and, and to treat its readership and to treat people, its investors in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a more mature way. Because I think everybody understands that I love the idea of everything you make, you reinvest it into the infrastructure so that, you know, you have a really vibrant company tomorrow. But after 10, 20, almost 20 years, now, at least 15 years of investments and people are not seeing a heck of a lot of returns, you have to wonder how long can you, can you go on like that? So I hope it's not going to bite it too, too hard, but it's something that they really need to be aware of. And it's something that it's probably also one of the reasons why I haven't written much about Tesla in a year, because I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried about always saying, hey, great news from Tesla. Oh, don't look at the finances. It's a mess. There were a couple of things which I found particularly disappointing on the conference call. One of them being that Musk lashed out at journalists who were asking questions or yes, he pointing out the obvious flaws. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, I totally disagree with Joe, John Smith. It's another thing to say shame on them. I guess there just seems to be a difference to me psychologically or the way I perceive that. You have to be thick-skinned, especially if you're a startup, especially if you're breaking new ground. It's kind of inevitable that people will try to poke holes in what you do. And in almost in a sense, that's kind of what you want because you want others to point out where you're weak so that you fix those gaps, you fill those gaps so that as you grow bigger, you don't have those weaknesses anymore. This is not to say I endorse Fox News by any stretch, but <laughs> there is a difference between, say, criticism and bashing. And I don't think that Tesla has the, their yardstick between bashing versus criticism in the right place. There is a room for analysts to say, hey, this, this doesn't look good without it being bashing, without Musk having to say shame on you. 
The most disappointing thing for me was this exchange when uh, one of the reporters asked for a prediction of 2018 production of Model 3s. And it doesn't show up in the transcript, but there was a 13-second pause. Depending on how quickly the audio becomes available, I'll try to loop that in. What's happening with the previous guidance of the 10,000 units per week at some point in 2018? Is that now like beyond 2018? I think before investors were estimating that, you know, if you could hit it at the end of 18, you'd do over 250,000 vehicles. If you could hit it more toward the middle, you'd do over 325. But what now would be a reasonable expectation based upon what you know uh, for the amount of Model 3s that do get built in 2018? <clears throat> It's a bit too early to, to make uh, an exact number, but I mean, if you extrapolate um, from 5,000, you know, towards the end of Q1, um, we, we do want to uh, hold up on significant capex until we are confident about cash flow on well three. Um, there was a 13-second pause. You can basically sing happy birthday in 13 seconds. Uh, and, and then Musk replied with some word salad, a very kind of evasive response. It's one thing to miss your production targets, to not have the experience. Maybe you make a few mistakes. You're over-aggressive. It is possible, I've seen it happen, that middle managers hide from senior management how bad things are. And then senior management almost have a heart attack because they thought things were going well and, oh, my God, things are all messed up. So it's possible to have technical problems and Musk not be aware of it. I don't think that's a good sign, but it's entirely possible. What is much more concerning to me is this is the single most predictable question that could have been on this, this conference call. Everyone was talking about it, buzzing about it ever since they announced their production results a month ago for the quarter, like 260 units. You knew that question was going to come up, but it didn't sound like he had rehearsed an answer. And again, drawing from my fuel cell experience, when you have an embattled company, the executives would spend time working out and rehearsing a convincing way or a convincing sounding way of spinning things, just so that even if you get these awkward questions, you have an answer. It sounds good, even though it might be flimsy on the back end. And it, it really, really concerns me that they don't seem to have prepared that. Your, your take, Nicholas? I mean, we've always loved how arrogant and cocky Musk was because in, in the past he was arrogant and cocky with journalists who were naysayers, you know, journalists who were pro-petroleum. Uh, and that was funny because he was thumbing his nose at them. So that we liked. But a question like that is extremely legitimate. And as you say, it's the first question you would want to ask. Well, actually, the second question after, you know, how did it go <laughs> this last quarter? But that 13-second pause to me, at least, shows that he must be under a lot of uh, a lot of pressure, under a lot of stress, and and yet again, it goes back to what I was saying about five years ago: is at some point, Musk will need to step back. Musk will need to put in there a CEO who understands startups, who understands electric mobility, who will be hopefully a real car guy and not another one of those finger designers. He will need to step back. He will need to you know, either become a chairman or a spokesperson for his company, but he will need to, uh, like any entrepreneur needs to do, is let go of the baby at one point. So that was, a, well, that was a very big faux pas, and I'm not really sure how damaging it will be in the long run, but it is definitely taking out another notch from the credibility uh, uh, that people have uh, or put, put on Tesla, that's for sure. A little while back, Tesla had hired Peter Hochholdinger, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, from Congratulations. Audi. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just glad you didn't say Gesundheit. Uh, <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> <laughs> so they hired this fellow from Audi to oversee their manufacturing. And I really do hope he has had veto power over some of Musk's ideas because this is the kind of industry insider who knows all the boring things you have to do to successfully ramp and build uh, vehicles. It's inevitable that you have challenges. I understand that. But again, it's also doable that you can do your best to manage and batten down the hatches and have pat answers for inevitable questions that come up. One other article that came out, this fits in the category of critical but not bashing, is from uh, Liam Denning from Bloomberg, who noted that Tesla has now burnt $2.5 billion of the roughly $3.2 billion it has raised this year, which means it's possible or probable that they're going to have to raise more money at some point. Whatever their cash level was $3.2 billion ago at the earlier in the year where they thought, okay, time to raise more money just to increase the cash cushion. They've spent most of that and you don't want to, I mean, it, it looks like at the pace they're going, they will need more money. And the worry, the big worry is what happens if they have to raise a bunch of money and the stock price is a little bit further down? Or what if the investment underwriters suddenly say, hmm, not so interested? It's very, it's worked out very well, unbelievably well for Tesla to be able to access the capital markets to expand its grand vision and grand plans. Genius, wonderful. Uh, however, Tesla is relying or assuming that well is always going to be full of water that it can pull from if it needs to. And that's not a good way to run a business. Again, coming from fuel cells, I know this. A lot of red flags were raised as a result of this conference call. And we do hope that Tesla's management, senior management and leadership team can pull together and move forward on a calmer basis. Reset the number that's out there. The big uh, announcement that they're going to put 500,000 Model 3s on the roads in 2018. I mean, that's an anchoring thing. Everyone thinks 500,000. Now, if you dial it back to 100,000 and then you beat that, that's a completely different narrative. That's like, hey, Tesla, Tesla for once made a realistic promise and they beat it, which means they'll beat their future forecast because they've learned how to be conservative. The fact that they haven't put a number down, even if it's an underestimate, even if it's a wild underestimate, I think in the long run that will help because if they can just get that track record of beating their promises, beating what they publicly proclaim, they will have that credibility and bond markets will be open for future funding if they need it. It's puzzling. I think it, it, they really need to have a hard, hard long look at their uh, philosophy, their tactic, and, and especially the way they tackle media. Because up until now, we were all very positive with Tesla, but you can't start. And it's actually funny because in the past few years, they have been snubbing a lot of different outlets and, and going for the mainstream outlets, which of course gives you more presence out there. But if you start to turn on these guys, then it's really not going to be good. Not a lot of people are going to be behind you or writing stories for you. So it's a, it's a two-way street. It has to go both ways. And, and I think that they really need to understand that. And you're right. Under promise. Hey, just say 100,000 cars, you know, and then we'll ramp it up if we can. And by the way, guys, we did 350, which is so much better, three times better than what we expected. And, you know, we are hope to, well, we hope to uh, ramp up production even more. Boy, that feels great. That's how you get investors on board. That's how investors say, well, you know, what? I'm going to invest even more. But as of now, seeing this as an investor, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to wait. And that's just not a great thing to do at all. 
right. I mean, I would agree with you, but then again, my track record with investing is, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you might as well do the opposite anyway. So that, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll hold it at that. I'm sure there'll be more news trickling out uh, there. There was something flying on Twitter just uh, a few minutes ago about possibly some like the EV tax credit might be up for grabs in this, uh, in this upcoming bill. We'll probably deal with that next week. This is the uh, $7,500 uh, tax credit in the States. And uh, again, we don't know what's going on. It just, it's come up. Looks like it might be a thing, might not be a thing. It will certainly impact the EV market if this is a thing. But we'll, know, we'll deal with that when we have a bit more information. We don't want to be a, um, we don't want to pull a, well, right. those guys again, Fox News, and report <laughs> things that we haven't bothered to actually research. Just, just yeah. for, maybe one quick note about that is the uh, $7,500 bracket is not, doesn't make much of a dent on the Tesla buyer. Well, for a Model 3 buyer, <laughs> that'd be important, right? But uh, you're right. Yeah, a Model 3, it would actually. You're right. Very good point. Now, I think, Nicholas, on an automotive note, I think uh, you had uh, another little thing you wanted to just uh, end off with here. Yeah, you know, I'm in a super rush to uh, finish the podcast. Not that I don't want to continue talking because I can yap forever, but I am going to test, hopefully test drive, but at least uh, uh, write a story on a mythical Ferrari. You know, uh, you remember uh, Magnum PI and his Ferrari 308, the, the red, beautiful, two-door, sleek uh, Italian Ferrari? Well, right. these guys down by Encinitas in uh, Southern California have uh, bought one that had completely burned. They got rid of the uh, beautiful Ferrari V8. Well, it stinks and everything, I know, but it's a beautiful sound. And they put in not one electric motor, but two electric motors. So I'm going out to see the car finally after after a few years of talking about it. And um, we'll be writing a story very soon on it. So I just thought it was kind of ironic that, you know, I was, a, I, I was, a, I mean, I'm still a car guy. I was a car guy, always wanted to drive that car, always wanted to see it, you know, much closer than just looking at it. And the first time I'm actually going to hopefully drive it, it will be electric. Oh, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> I believe that uh, at that time, I was, uh, I was still pining that we could get a TV. Uh, <laughs> I mean, different uh, strokes for different folks. Uh, my, uh, my aspirations were a little bit different. I do remember seeing Tom Selleck and saying, wow, that's a big mustache. Um, yes. That, that, was my, that was my memory when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> uh, being part Asian, uh, I don't have that uh, kind of uh, blessing when it comes to, uh, to facial hair. Well, you know what? It's actually horrible having to shave it off every day. Ugh, not fun. Actually, yeah, that's right. Uh, I should also note that friends of mine who are uh, follically challenged also comment that <laughs> not having to comb one's hair in the morning is a, is a disadvantage. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's it for now. Uh, we could talk in a very uneducated manner about all manner of things quotidian and pedestrian in life, but you guys are probably going to be wanting to uh, end your commute soon. I hope uh, it went well for everyone, and uh, join us next week to get your electric fix. Goodbye, everyone. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you later. <laughs>